Well, I'm going to invite another couple of my friends to the stage right now, our dear friends uh, from Kintsugi Hope, uh, Diane and Patrick Regan. Why don't you give them a big round of applause? Great to see you guys. I've, um, I've just got one microphone to share nicely with one another. Who's going to have it first? Patrick. Great. Have a sit down. Um, just as a way of context, um, so Patrick, me and you have been prayer partners for a fair while now. So we, 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 this is kind of a setup, although I never quite know what Patrick's going to say. So <laughs> sit quite nervously on the edge of my drum, my drum stool. Um, um, and Patrick, why don't you just say a little bit about your sort of history uh, in terms of XLP and, and, and how you kind of came into Christian leadership? Um, yeah, well, I guess it was 22 years ago now, I was a youth worker in a local church and there was a stabbing in the school down the road. And uh, so the school phoned the church up and said, we need you to help us get the moral fibre of our school up. And the vicar didn't really fancy it, so sent me as the local youth worker to um, see what I could do. And uh, I arrived in a school which was very different to the culture I was brought up in. And I really went in with saying, you know, as a local church, we believe in serving our local community. What can we do to serve? What can we do to help? Um, this one school had 65 mother tongue languages in it. Um, it wasn't that the kids were thick or stupid. They just didn't understand what was being taught. Um, I had kids come up to me wearing bulletproof vests underneath their school uniform. 14-year-old um, girls who said, um, my biggest aim in life is to be a single mum because I want a baby to love and a baby to love me and I don't want no bloke getting in the way. And uh, so I found 17 people to give us £25 a month, and we started XLP. And uh, Diane come up with a name. Um, it means for um, people to excel in everything they did. And the charity, I guess, over the last 22 years grew to quite a large charity. Um, I think now it works with nearly um, 1,800 young people a week, 70-plus um, staff um, working across the inner city and doing all sorts of uh, amazing things. And the other Kate Middleton spends quite a lot of time with that charity. And with you, is that right? Yeah, we had... Um, <laughs> Sorry, the, 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 not downgrading our own Kate Middleton. I, just, <laughs> I know she's been... Like the other Kate Middleton was referenced, but... The yeah. not-so-important Kate Middleton right, came, and, you, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, Will and Kate came. Um, they came twice, actually, um, in a year, which was amazing. And they're very passionate about mental health, and, uh, and it, was, it was quite amusing because they came onto our bus and they sat down, and, uh, and there's this one really dear little 15-year-old girl who just had a baby... And she really wanted to say something, but she was really, really nervous. And uh, just as it got to the end, because um, I could say the time was going, she just blurted out, XLP, help me have a baby! <laughs> I was like... <laughs> <laughs> we weren't okay. there or anything, you know. It was like, yeah, we, push, we... <laughs> push! Um, so, um, yeah, so it's been interesting getting to know those, know those guys. And, and Patrick, just obviously, for, for quite a long time, and, and even still, when there's, uh, when there's a fatal stabbing or a gangland sort of activity impacting on people, you're very often the person the press kind of call, call on to kind of make a response. Um, so you've been, do you want to say about sort of trench town and being kind of frontline within kind of trauma settings? Um, yeah, I guess um, when we were living in Peckham, there was a young boy called Damalola Taylor. I don't know if you remember. He got stabbed and killed just down the road from where me and Diane were living. And... Uh, from that moment on, I really wanted to be passionate about how the church could engage in that whole issue. And of course, the thing about knife crime and gangs is that mental health is huge because the kids are paranoid. They're like, I'll stab you before you stab me. And, uh, and they're on edge the whole time because none of it's kicking off. So I really try to understand, you know, I, one of my favorite verses is in uh, Chronicles, I think it's Chronicles 12, 32, don't quote me. The men of Issachar understood the times and knew what Israel should do. 
And so my big thing is how do we understand what's going on? So I've taken myself off to many countries. One is Trenchtown in Jamaica, where Kintsuji Hope's working now, and uh, done gang mediation work. And uh, it's just incredible to see God working in some of these places where, you know, they're often forgotten. In fact, today I got a text from Jamaica saying that West Kingston is now in shutdown. Um, and I was there a couple of um, months ago in June, and uh, I'm in a school there. 90% of the kids there don't have dads. Um, 70% of them have been sexually abused. And uh, one of the things that Kintsuji wants to do is, is actually fund a mental health counsellor to go on staff at the school. And, uh, and, you know, but there are just so many amazing people. There's a little lady there just really quickly called Miss Lorna, and uh, she's my hero in life. Um, she was the head teacher of the school. When she started the school, she only had a few American dollars in the middle of Trenchtown, one of the most violent places on earth. And uh, she used um, clipboards as uh, desk, building blocks as chairs. And she said, gunmen come to me and put guns in my face. And said, give us money and we'll protect you. She said, I look gunmen in the face. I said, who do you think you are, Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're my new best friend, please don't leave me. And, uh, and it's just amazing, you know, a bit what Beth was saying about hope in some of the most forgotten places in the world. And those places we can't forget, the church can't forget, we still need to be there. And, uh, and you know, the thing about the media is people always say to me, did you have a massive media department? The media department was just me. Yeah. And the fact is, is what I've said to people is stop chasing the media and just get on and do what God's called you to do. Because actually, Mother Teresa was one of the most quoted people on the planet. And uh, it's integrity, honesty, authenticity. Let the media follow us around and let's stop seeking to be on the platforms all the time. And then we'll start making a difference. That's so good. Diane, yeah. I let him loose now. I, I, I shouldn't have done that. I should have come to you, Diane, first. Keep him under, keep him under control. <laughs> Diane, no, it's all right. You can come back. Um, Diane, you've, you've, you're like absolutely integral to this story. And, and I'm, I want to talk to you both about Patrick's kind of struggle with all the injuries and you know, the, with the, his legs and everything. But just in this period of growing... XLP and being just so deep in the ministry of, of, of isolation, urban deprivation in London. How, how have you seen that impact your family and impact Patrick? As, what's it been like sort of watching the last 22 years unfold and supporting it and trying to help everything keep, you know, keep on track? Well, we're still together. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. Um, at the start, um, when Patrick started XLP, obviously I came up with a name and I was really involved. I was the part of the worship team, I was the drama team, I was the roadie, I was very good at coiling wires. Um, we would do the hosting, we'd do all sorts of things, and then um, we had children and I sort of went into the mum bubble. You okay there? <laughs> and I remember coming up out of the mum bubble and seeing there'd been a big, huge shift. I think it was around the whole time of Soul in the City and Patrick's role had really grown and widened. And I'd just watch from a distance, off you go, iron his shirts when he needed to go on TV. But just suddenly be exposed and seeing what he was into, I realised quite how... Um, you know, he, Patrick never sought to be a, the Christian leader who he is. He never sought, he, you know, he's talking about the media following him. They do. And as his wife, I can tell you 100%, it is or definitely integrity and, and uh, authenticity. He's never gone to find it. So then suddenly me, when I was exposed to it, I found it scary and I went back into my mum bubble to hide because I, I didn't want anything to do with it. But so watching from the background how, you know, this immense pressure on you... Um, 
all I could do was pray, really, and, and you know, I didn't understand. I didn't fully understand. Um, just trying to, to get our children <laughs> to school was a, a big, huge feat. We've got four children. Um, but just, you know, as, as life progressed and as the pressure got bigger and bigger and, and um, I could see he was struggling, he was suffering and I tr it was just my lack of understanding of being able to support him. So I remember trying to find someone to help me to understand how do you support a, a Christian leader? And um, I hope I've done a good job. You've done, you've done an amazing <laughs> you job. Try. Um, we try. You know, obviously, this is the Lead Well Conference and we, uh, you know, we, we're trying to equip the church and, and, and people frontline ministries to lead well with their emotional health in, in mind. So we, we've obviously spent, we've spent years together. I know everything Diane says is true. You know, you're running away from the media and the media run after you. Uh, Patrick, a few years ago, it all got quite difficult for you physically. Just want to say a bit about, um, you know, when I first met you, I thought well, your legs look slightly bowed. <laughs> I thought it was um, just, you know, one of those things. It was actually quite a serious, it was quite a serious condition. Just want to say a bit about how how that worked out. Um, yeah, I guess about, oh, I don't know how many years it is ago now, and ten about 10 years, years ago, yeah, is um, I went through one of those stages in my life uh, where everything went wrong at once. Has anyone else been through any of those phases? Yeah, yeah. It's like a perfect storm, isn't it, of things going wrong. Dino always talks about Tetris. Anyone remember the game Tetris? Yeah. And, uh, God, you're all old as are. And uh, basically, Tetris, for those who don't know, they're like blocks that fall out of the sky, and you've got to get them all in a straight line really, really quickly, and then they seem to get quicker and quicker and quicker. And I think sometimes life can feel a little bit like that. And, uh, you know, um, Kezia, our, our, our now teenage little girl, got a condition called HSP, and, um, which is a very, very, very um, scary uh, condition. I know that your daughter's had it as well. Um, uh, my dad got cancer. He was meant to go in the hospital for a week. He was in the hospital for nine weeks. Um, he was 12 stone. He lost 30 stone of weight. Um, we had a, a, a miscarriage and we lost a baby. And, and then around the same time, I got diagnosed with this degenerative knee condition, which means that I need to get both my legs broken in a number of places and have this like ex huge external frame put around my leg with wires going through one side of my leg and out the other side of my leg and things being drilled into my bones. And they said this cage would be around my leg, this external cage, um, for about six to 18 months. And I'm an activist. And uh, so this to me was like the worst news ever. And, uh, to do, and, and to have to psychologically have to have to do it twice as well um, was quite difficult. And you know, my mate said to me, "Mate, that's awful. That's like waiting for a car accident to happen. You know, something really bad's going to happen, and you get to decide when it is." And uh, and of course, around that time, with all this stuff going on, I really started struggling with anxiety. And to be honest with you. Um, I think I've always struggled with anxiety, and I use the cage as a bit of an excuse um, to talk about it, because I think these things act like as rocket fuel. They just uh, escalate it. And, uh, but then I'm a Christian leader, so then I struggled for feeling guilty about suffering from anxiety. So as well as suffering from anxiety, now I'm suffering from guilt as well. And yeah, then you bought my books. Yeah. I, I, so I read Will's book, and uh, I should, I must, I ought. <laughs> I think I should be okay, I ought to be okay, I must be okay. I should, I must, I ought. And, uh, and I just started, my mental health started to deteriorate and uh, I went into an incredibly, incredibly dark place. Dan, do, do you want to say a bit about when you, when you kind of transitioned into support? Because you know, you're breathing secondhand smoke here. You're both trying to enable Patrick to do what he was doing with XLP and all the pressure of that. I mean, I saw the massive impact of the leg cages you were running a family of four, Kezia wasn't well, 
you've, got an aut you've a child with uh, autism as well, and, and, and you're running a household. How, how, how did that all work out? I, I mean, that's, that's a bad question. How, how, how long you got? How, 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 how would you say you supported Patrick and also looked well, after your own, your own mental health? It, it wasn't just having the frame on. I mean, for Patrick, who he did have quite a pressured job, being told he couldn't play football anymore, that was huge. That was watching his one passion, the one thing that, although I hated being a football widow on a Saturday, actually it's one of those you don't realise what you've got till it's gone. And, and you know, he, he needed that to let out his stress. And so it was almost just watching him implode on himself and... Um, like I said, it was lack of understanding. I didn't know how to do it. And when it came to prepare for him to have the surgery, we'd gone and met with the team. We knew that there was a lot of work involved in me having to care for him. And I am not a natural... Sorry? Yeah. Um, he's reminding what I had to do. I haven't forgotten. But, um, yeah, it, it was, I'm not a nurse. I'm not a natural nurse. I'm not a natural carer. I love people, but um, I never chose to go into the caring profession deliberately. And so I was sort of thrown into it. And how do you change and prepare yourself from being from your teammate to having a teammate. We, we run things very well together as a team. Um, you know, it is a busy household, but suddenly I was having to do all of it by myself, plus take on the role as nurse. And so I tried to find resources and information on how do you prepare yourself to, to care for someone. And I found nothing but depressing reading. And there were forums of people caring for other members of mostly family and mostly actually with, with mental health issues. And they themselves were taking on those issues that they were perhaps caring for the others about so it was a lot of um, depression a lot of anxiety and they were then turning into these people I was reading about the very thing I didn't want to become and they were all being very resentful and then they were feeling guilty there was a huge amount of isolation as a carer looking for people so it was a scary read but actually when I then got to that point of, of him having surgery and I remember it was a, it was extremely anxious I even called you up didn't I <laughs> And you were so helpful, and um, I had to just throw myself into the world to try and understand how to support somebody suffering with anxiety, as well as how to become a nurse. I had to clean his wounds. He had about 20 wires and pins through his legs. I mean, unless there's a picture, you can't, and you've seen an external fixator, it's quite hard to, to understand. And I mean, the whole procedure would take about two hours. It all had to be in a completely sterile environment. When you've got four children, we actually even had a dog at the time. You know, it's not easy. <laughs> and I think the youngest was, was two at the point, wasn't he, as well. So, um, and then finding schools for children in, in London, it's not just a, you go from this school to the next, you know, there's like 10 schools, it's secondary school, you know, it's a stressful time, also trying to work, we had to get the money coming in, trying to protect him from his own work, where they wanted him, there were, you know, the demands from there, and, and just trying to manage it all, it, it was hard, and so... I remember very, very soon on, right at the beginning, the hospital would just literally delivered him in an ambulance to our house, put him on the sofa and walked out. And I just thought, how do I do this? How do I do this? And um, I can't remember why, but my mother-in-law and my both and my mum was there as well. I said, mum, you're going to have to take the kids. We've got to figure this out. And we had a few days of just trying to get through it. And I went up to our room and I, I said, you know that phrase, there's light at the end of the tunnel? I couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. It was just too long. We knew this was potentially up to four years. And I didn't know how I was going to do it. And I was just crying. And I just felt God show me a picture. He said, don't look for the end of the tunnel. Look for the now. There's light there now. 
I'll give you enough for now. And it was so true. There were so many wonderful things happening. People were being kind. People were giving meals. People were praying. People were there. You just had to look. And so that became our strategy, just coping day by day, sometimes even hour by hour. And there were moments where it was just get through this next few minutes. Yeah. That's amazing. Pa Patrick, you, you've obviously, I mean, 22 years of gangs, youth ministry, youth work, transformational experience in some of, some of the toughest estates in London. And I mean, you gathered so many stories of, of suffering, but also you saw the implications of mental health, both for, for leaders, for yourself, for your family, and also for people you know, in, in, involved in these tragic situations. At what point did you feel like can, the Kintsugi Hope story kind of rose out of that? There was a, sort of a point, I mean, we, we spent a lot of time talking about it, but at what point did you feel like engaging with people's mental health story and their story of suffering was the thing that God was calling you to? Yeah, I mean, basically, um, before I went into hospital, I wrote this blog called When Faith Gets Shaken. And, uh, and it was just one of those things because I thought I'm going to have loads of time on my hands. I've never written a blog before in my life. And uh, it just got read by thousands and thousands and thousands of people. It was just one of those weird things that occasionally happens on social media. And I was inundated with Facebook messages. And, and the weird thing was, it was like, I've never read anything from a Christian before that's so honest. And I guess honesty breeds more honesty. And, uh, and so we started um, doing stuff around when faith gets shaken. We went on tour with my friend Andy Flanagan. We did a DVD. We, started, we did a TV thing that you was on. And, and we just started to have this really honest conversation. Where is God in the midst of suffering? And, uh, and as we started doing lots of research, I read a lot, um, we came up with this image of Kintsugi, and, uh, which I'm sure you're aware of. Um, basically, if we break a bowl, if I break a bowl when I was a kid, I'd mend it with super glue. And the whole idea is I'd go to my mum and pretend it wasn't broken. And, uh, and of course, it always, it never works because there's always that annoying bubble that you can't get rid of. And uh, so what they do in Japan is they put a gold powder in the glue. So instead of hiding the cracks, they make a feature of the cracks. Arguably, the object becomes more beautiful than it was before. And, uh, and it becomes more unique. There's not a bowl like it on planet Earth now. And, uh, and as I was going through this phase, I was really trying to grapple with stuff. I was trying to learn about self-compassion. I, you know, I was an activist. I used to think self-compassion was just selfishness, you know. But I realized that self-compassion and self-indulgence are two very different things. And actually, self-compassion takes discipline. It means I need to get up and I need to go for that run or go to the gym. And I, I can't have that extra glass of wine when I'm stressed. It, it takes discipline. Um, I started realizing that um, anger, which I felt a lot of, is an emotional response to pain. It, it's a symptom. It's not, there's nothing, you know, in the Bible it says, do not let your anger reside. And, uh, and so I started realizing all these things. And as I started preaching and talking about it really, really honestly, I think people started really connecting with it. And I really felt, we felt that together, um, after 22 years, that God was saying, it's time to let XLP go. Now, you all know this, that founders don't tend to let go. Um, they tend to do it until they die. And uh, so that was huge. Um, how do I let go of something that I've just poured my life into? And uh, we've sacrificed so much. And I don't know, you've heard this little story, how to catch a monkey. You know, you get a coconut, you put a hole in it. I mean, tie it to a tree and you put some um, food in it and the, the stupid monkey comes along and he puts his hand in there and it grabs it and then someone comes along and it just catches the monkey. Why? Because it refuses to let go. And sometimes that we need to learn to let go. 
And I realized I need to learn to let go. I need to let go of my need to always be right. <laughs> I need to let go of trying to fight for everything because my whole life has been fighting for everything that I've ever done. I need to let go of worrying about what other people think of me and step out of shame. And you know what? I am someone that struggles from anxiety and uh, I am learning to manage it. And, uh, and I stood on the stage at Spring Harvest and 4,000 people and said, I've never heard anyone be on a stage this side and talk about mental health when they say, when they don't say, 22 years ago when I had depression. No one talks about it in the current. So I went, tonight is the first. And suddenly you could hear a pin drop. <laughs> because it is, it's hard for me sometimes. And Diane will tell you. And, uh, but I've learned you know, that God's silence doesn't mean God's absence and uh, that he is there in those moments. And actually we talk about darkness. You know what? Jacob wrestled for God in the darkness. Um, Abraham could only see the stars in the darkness. And, uh, and sometimes our eyes start to adjust. And so I believe that God is in the dark as much as he is in the light. And actually, instead of being ashamed of our scars, why don't we celebrate and talk about it and create a safe place where we say it's okay not to be okay? Yeah, I think we all agree with that. Um, you've dined to say a bit about the kind of the tours and just how people are giving their stories because everyone's, everyone's offering a story, aren't they? I mean, everyone's got a story to share. How is, how is bringing people's stories into the light? Has it, how have you seen it change people when someone shared their story of pain? How, what do you see happen? Yeah, we've just been absolutely inundated. As Patrick's been open and honest, it's just opened up the doors for people to be open and honest. And we are just getting emails and messages and just so much. Just people saying thank you for just starting the conversation. And so what we wanted to do was to set up something that could just help facilitate that more in, in the wider sense. So we're just piloting this this groups, the Kasuji Hope groups. You can see the sign there. Um, we have no literature about it. We have nothing because we are literally right at point dot. But um, And it's all about just owning your story and being proud of this is who I am yes there are scars yes there have been cracks but this is what's made me unique and and there's so much I can still do and God can still use me and God is going to use me and there's so much potential not just when you're healed but through the healing and at any moment of the day there's so much you can do so helpful Patrick do you want to say a bit about honesty over silence because I mean I wrote the forward for when faith gets shaken I find that really powerful I found honesty over silence like, not just painful, so like blubbing, you know, like crying my way through it. it it's, it's you, you, I mean, what we're, we're providing a response to mental health, but you're actually providing a kind of almost like a way in and like an awakening. How's, how, 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 how did it come about to write the book and what's the impact of that been? Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote it um, towards the end of last year and when I was going through my toughest time, actually, and uh, I think... I, at one point, decided to lay it down and not write it. And then I read the Psalms and realized I was in really good company, uh, that 40% of the, Psalm, the Psalms are laments. They're David crying out, and uh, some of the most beautiful writing is done in that time. So it was written in a quite a, a tough time, but it was written in the sense that I think there's two things. One is this whole thing around letting go. So letting go of pain, letting go of anxiety, letting go of the clock. Um, and all those sort of things, and shame as well, you know, that's a big thing for me. Uh, I just felt ashamed. You know, Brene Brown says shame loves silence, it loves secrecy, and it loves judgment. And so what we do is we keep things in secrecy, and, uh, and we don't talk about it, and that actually, uh, part of stepping out of shame is owning your story, isn't it? 
And that's where the whole courage and vulnerability is the same thing. And I think we need to lead differently. I think we need to lead with courage and we need to lead with vulnerability. And, uh, and so the whole thing of letting go, but we don't let go just for no reason. We let go to be, to be more compassionate, to be more authentic, to be hopeful. Um, and I guess that one, that's one of the things that we really wanted to look at. So we're doing a tour and it's just been crazy. We're doing one in November and one in March and then November next year. Um, I think all of them are booked out, and it just shows you the sort of interest there is. But I've really felt that like God say to us, don't just start a charity, start a movement. And start a movement of people that are into integrity or authenticity. You know, the whole thing about the groups is not marching into our communities and saying, you're going to hell and Jesus is going to rescue you. It's about going, I'm broken, you're broken. Let's share in our brokenness. Let's share in our common humanity. And as you do that, it's amazing. People have been going up to us like, you know, we've had non-Christians, non-Christians are loving the Kintsuji thing. Because, um, yeah, I'm broken. My husband's just left. Yeah, I'm broken because I've got a kid who's got special needs and they kick me every morning before I get into bed. And you see, well, what we're guilty sometimes of doing, isn't it? We always preach the showreel in church. Mm. The amount of times I sit there and I heard physical healing stories, I got, heal- I got prayed for by every famous speaker under the sun. In fact, and I felt like I needed to repent of more sin because they told me I didn't have enough faith. In fact, I was making sins up to repent of at times um, just to, you know, make sure I'm, I'm doing everything I can. And, uh, but we know what, we've got to be those leaders that um, model something differently. And honesty over silence is saying, let's not just talk about it. Because I think we've raised the issue of uh, mental health. It's great. But let's get into our communities. Let's get into costas and pubs and yeah. royal legions and schools. And I would love it if the move of God doesn't happen in a warehouse in America somewhere where God TV comes in and films the whole thing. I would love for it to happen across our nation where people naturally gather and they hear about frailty and brokenness and how God ministers to people in yeah. that. So that, I guess, is the vision behind Kintsuji Hope. That's a good vision, right? <laughs> That's a great vision. Um, yeah, I mean, wow, I love you guys. Why are you so good? It just really annoys me. It makes me feel really emotional when I'm supposed to be, like, really together. Um, thank you, I do, actually. Diane was the one who was meant to cry. <laughs> thank you. Um, oh, throw me off course. You know, I, 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 like, I want to sort of express our, part, you know, part, our partnership. We're not partner organisations formally, but we, we, we are trying to help and stand with one another and it's been my total privilege to to walk alongside uh, these guys for a few years and um and just see that integrity and i think what what inspires me is the fact that i know that these guys have done it already you know if you want to if you want to follow someone follow someone who's already walked that road and um and these guys walked that road for 22 years with xlp there's no you know there's no doubt it's only the charity it is today because they knew how to walk the road, which was a really painful road to walk. And so I feel like this Kintsugi Hope Road is, is a good road to walk. And, and I want to kind of encourage everyone here today if that's, you know, if you feel like, wow, here's a, here's a, here's a journey, we could start Kintsugi Hope groups and then we can, you know, we can help them into the expertise of the Minor Soul Foundation and associate charities. You know, I think the Lord's calling us to, to partner and to pipeline. Yeah. You know, we actually, we want to be partnering. I think this, the days are gone when Christian charities set up their own big banner and they all do their own spangly thing on yeah. their own. And God's calling us all to collaboration, partnership, friendship, relationship, totally. mutual benefits. You know, everyone gets to play and, and, and we want to just yeah. sort of express In that In fact, too. we'd like to keep it small because it's cheaper that way. <laughs> but um, I, I was... I was don't, <laughs> don't believe that for a moment. <laughs> 
We're going to make it as big as possible, give Patrick a financial headache. Um, but I just want to say, finish with this one last thing. I was laying in bed this morning and thinking I've got to get up ridiculously early on a Saturday morning, like most of you. Um, Diane got up a lot earlier than me. She's just pointing out uh, to set the stand up. You got up at half five, right? Five. Five. Okay. Wow. You see that? Five. <laughs> and while well, you were snoring. <laughs> and, uh, but, um, I, I was remembering this story, and uh, which um, means a lot to me. Um, about five years ago, um, XLP had a visit from Archbishop Desmond Tutu. I hope you caught that name as it dropped there. And, um, and he came with, um, and we, I was so excited, because I'd met lots of politicians normally a week before the election, and, uh, but I've met a lot of them, and I thought, Desmond Tutu's my hero. I love this guy. And uh, so basically, he was coming at 10 o'clock in the morning, and the problem was, is that he wanted to come onto our bus project. Now, the problem about him coming at 10 o'clock in the morning, that most of our young people were either in bed or in school. So I sent my youth workers around going, you've got to get up, Desmond Tutu's coming. And they're like, ooh. I was like, oh, you're kidding me. And so I would say to him, ask me if I've heard of Nelson Mandela. And he's like, have you heard of Nelson Mandela? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Say, he's the next best thing. He's, the next best. he's got bling and everything. You're going to love him. He's great. And... Uh, and he was coming with Mary Robinson, who was the um, president of Ireland, but we weren't even going to bother explaining who she was. And, uh, and so they come along, and uh, Desmond Tutu um, uh, jumps out of his taxi, and I'm on the bus with all these young people who are all there, more out of respect for us than knowing who these guys were. They were sort of staring out the bus. And he came, and he grabbed my hand. And you know how really old people sometimes, lovely old people, grab your hand? and then don't let go for ages. <laughs> it was one of those moments. So we walked hand in hand onto the bus. All my young people are going, seriously, who is this dude? And, um, and he, he talked to them, and, uh, and he listened. He listened so much, and he had this one, there's two key things, three key things about this. He had one key thing he said to them at the end, and I guess for all of us that struggle with emotional mental health, he said this, your past doesn't have to define your future. Your past doesn't have to define your future. That's what hope is. Hope is saying it will pass in this life or another. And then he grabbed this kid's hand and, uh, and it was a kid whose um, mate had been stabbed and killed. And uh, he didn't know that. He'd smoked so much weed that morning. He was pretty fidgety most of the time. And he said, I'll tell you what you are. You are a VSP. Very special person. You're made in the image of God. You have the potential to change this world. And this kid, to be honest, um, um, he still had challenges. Um, but he just took it. He just took it. And uh, he went around the estate and, uh, you know, he cut his hair, he got himself clean. He went, Desmond Tutu spoke to me. Um, <laughs> and to be honest, all the kids didn't know Desmond Tutu is. At the end, they went, it was really nice of Trevor MacDonald to come down and uh, <laughs> hang out. Good old Trev. But the point is this, is right at the end, me and Desmond Tutu were on our own. And he turned to me and he went, Patrick, you make God smile. Now the problem is, I've told that story a lot of times, right? It's quite a good story. Every time I've told it, apart from the last five times, I told everyone, I lied. I told everyone that Desmond Tutu said, XLP make God smile because I couldn't accept it 
because I struggled as a leader to accept that actually God loved me for who I am. And as I was laying in bed this morning, I thought, God, what do you want to say to these leaders who are here today? And it's just like, you're a VSP, very special people in this room. And then I just felt him to say, and uh, I just want you to tell them, thank you. And I was like, have you got an impressive Greek word I could use? That would be a much, <laughs> make me look a lot better. Thank you sounds a bit wussy. Thank you for all the hours that you guys put in. Thank you to all the nurses, all the people that care unconditionally. Thank you to the pastors here who just get drained. You know, we need to realize, don't we, we are not the rescuers. We are not sponges. Jesus is the rescuer. But thank you. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for serving the communities of London and beyond. Um, you guys are totally and utterly VSPs. You're amazing. Amen. Let's give them a massive round of applause. Dan and Patrick, thank you guys. Thanks so much.